This is the twelfth uh, message and the final message, actually, in the series on discerning the will of God, in which I have tried for the majority of my messages to demystify the, uh, the decision-making process that we go through as believers. In this final message I call biblically-based decision-making, and I didn't want to drag it out into, I could have, but I didn't, because it's, I think, rather, rather straightforward, and we just get back to the book, right? Our lives will be a whole lot easier. There was a reporter who was covering a story on the citrus industry in Florida. And he went into a building and he saw a man sorting out oranges. And as the oranges tumbled down the conveyor belt, the man would put the large ones into large holes, the small ones into small holes, and the damaged oranges into a third hole. Hour after hour, the man did this job. And the reporter watched him perform that incredibly boring job until he couldn't stand it any longer. So finally he spoke up and he, and he asked the man, doesn't it get to you? I mean, how can you stand there putting those oranges into those holes all day long? You don't know the half of it, the man replied, from the time I come to the time I leave. It's decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> At least that man's decisions were limited to three possibilities per orange, right? Now, to get started, I, I would like to point out what I have said before. The Bible does not directly address most of the decisions that we have to make in life. And we make plenty of them every day. Most small, ordinary decisions, sometimes significant decisions. But you won't get a direct answer from the scripture on what car you should buy, what job you should take, what college you should attend if you're a young person, whom you should marry, what diet you should follow, or where you should go on your next vacation. And those are some of the decisions that people regularly have to make. However, because the Bible doesn't give specific advice on making the majority of decisions that we make, it doesn't leave us with, without sound advice. It gives us sound principles to follow. And once you know the wisdom from the scriptures, you will have a, a good foundation for decision making all of your life. Now, I need to clarify that. There is no guarantee that all of your decisions, even if you try to make them biblically based, will lead to a good outcome. A Christian man can marry a good Christian woman with a good Christian heritage and the marriage can still go off the tracks because marriage is the union of two sinners. And if they don't walk in the Spirit, there can and will be trouble. But the likelihood of a, a lasting and God-honoring marriage is high if both of them would submit to the Word of God. And as the scripture says, the control of the Holy Spirit in their life. You can make what seems like a good financial investment and it may not yield a profit, but a net loss. The job you searched for and thought you were well suited for may not work out for you. And that's because there are plenty of variables in decision making that we have absolutely no control over sometimes. 
But even, let me say this, even if a wise decision, and you're using biblical principles, leads to unforeseen difficulties, that does not mean that it was the wrong one. In fact, difficulties are often used by God to sanctify us. So how then do we respond in those circumstances? That's, that's the key thing. But nevertheless, the best decision-making model to follow is the biblical model. And the biblical model is not looking for signs or trying to interpret circumstances or looking from, for advice from people who will probably tell us what we want to hear. It begins with the Word of God and really ends with the Word of God for the most part. There is no substitute for the Scripture in your life. Absolutely no substitute. And you know, we live in a world of substitutes, do we not? And, and we love our substitutes. Many of them are good, some are not so good. But there is nothing, nothing, hear me, that can substitute for the Word of God in your life. Nothing. It's the spiritual food that is necessary for godly Christian living. And nothing can take the place of that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 4, man does not live on bread alone. And that's really standing for food. But on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And it does come forth. The Bible says that the scripture is inspired. God breathed. So let's proceed under the assumption that God's will is not elusive. He's not, he's not trying to put us on a, on a search to find his will. That's very frustrating, right? He has given us the guidance that we need in his word to know his will and to do his will. And that's why Paul told Timothy, chapter 4, verse 15, Timothy, meditate on these things. Keep your mind on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to everyone, to all. And that's, that's, that's true for all of us. Meditate on the Word of God. Don't just read through to put the check you know, in your box that you completed your daily Bible reading. Meditate on them. Give yourself entirely to them your thoughts, and then your obedience so that your progress may be evident to all. So God's will is not elusive. Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will. You are my God. This was the desire of the psalmist, to do the will of God. And in order to do the will of God, we need to know what God requires. And remember I said before that you have the, the, the creed will of God, the sovereign will of God, which we cannot know. We can know sometimes what God has done by looking back. But that's unalterable. That's what God has the willed to be. And then there is the bulk of the scriptures that give us the, the moral will of God. And this is clearly revealed in the scripture. So when Psalmist says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God, He's, he's wanting the instructions from the Word of God to apply to his life. So the first step then is to read your Bible faithfully. 
faithfully. Because God provides wisdom in his word to keep you from destroying your life by sin. And that's exactly what sin does. Long time ago, I marked down in my Bible, this is not my Bible, but I marked down sin will keep you from the Bible and the Bible will keep you from sin. And teach that to your children. Sin will make a mess out of your life and the Bible will keep you from that mess. So read the Bible faithfully. God gives wisdom from his word. And let me ask you, why would you not want or desire more than anything else wisdom from the God, the one who possesses, the scripture says, all wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding, that's his wisdom, his knowledge is infinite. That means without limitation. He knows all things. We call that theologically omniscience. He knows all things. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows all possibilities that could occur. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or has become His counselor? God is not in need of counsel from anyone. He knows all things. His knowledge is infinite. Look at Proverbs with me. Chapter 1, verse 2. Because Proverbs is wisdom literature. Proverbs 1. Start in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Here's what he says. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despite wisdom, despise wisdom and instruction. So underscore the word there, wise man. Wise man. What is wisdom? The Hebrew word hakmah, wisdom, describes the ability to function successfully in life. Young people, that's what wisdom is. It's skill for living. It's knowing how to live life skillfully. In every area of your life. The opposite of this is, is behaving like a foolish person. How do foolish people live their lives? Haphazardly. Haphazardly. They really do not give thought to the consequences of many of the crucial decisions that they make. Now there's only one way to acquire wisdom. But when it comes to making a fool of yourself, there are millions of different ways. The only way to acquire wisdom is from the Scripture. And I would challenge you sometime to 
studied the characteristics of the fools in Proverbs. There's, there's actually three of them or more even. There are two dozen of them that I, I, I found on one list that I read. Two dozen characteristics of the fools, the simpleton, the, 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 the foolish man in, in, in the book of Proverbs. But one of the chief ones is his or her unwillingness to learn or to receive correction. Right? That's common from the time you ch- you know, you're training up your child. That's what you want. You want them to understand what they did wrong and put them on the path of doing right. But the fool assumes that they already know all that needs to be known in a given situation. But every Christian, every single one of us, must be willing to receive instruction. This proverb says, A wise man will hear. Hear. What did Jesus say? He who has what? Ears to hear. Let him hear. A wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. And let me say to you this morning that you have not really attained wise counsel until you have put that counsel into practice. Until it, the, until it becomes a reality in your life. There's nothing more frustrating for somebody offering biblical counsel than having people that they're counseling don't put it into practice in their life. You end up back on square one. James 1.22 says, Be ye what? Doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, looks into the word of God, and then James says, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. I like Titus 2, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God, thank God for the grace of God. We're all here this morning worshiping God because of his grace working in our life. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Salvation is by what? Faith alone in Christ alone. In his finished work of redemption, which he accomplished on the cross. So so he says the grace of God has brought salvation and it has appeared to all men. And that's because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the will of God. But right after that, salvation, experience in our life, then the process of sanctification takes place. Sanctification is God making us holier and holy. More and more like His Son, the Lord Jesus. So that's why Titus says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What's he talking about? Doing the word of God, being a doer of the word of God, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And then he adds, zealous for good works. That's sanctification. If, if God is at work sanctifying you, he's making you more and more like his son. And then you have a hunger and a desire to serve him. I, I wrote down a long time, time ago in my Bible, I cannot work my soul to save that work my Lord has done but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear son. So God is at work in us, all of us. If you're a child of God here today, God is at work in you, in the circumstances in your life to sanctify you. But we are not passive in that process. So we have to be determined to pursue the wisdom that God gives in His Word. Proverbs 2.1. If you're in Proverbs, look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You will have wisdom from God. But did you notice, did you notice the action words in those in verses that I just read? Receive, verse 1. Treasure, verse 1. Incline your ear and heart, verse 2. Cry out, verse 3. Lift up your voice for understanding, verse 3. Seek and search. We're not, we're not passive in the process. We have to diligently seek the Word of God for wisdom. If I were to tell you that I put $1,000 in a small box under one of those rocks out there, on that, on that rock pile. <laughs> I think there might be a stampede of some young people here after church to find it. The kids would turn over every rock to find it. You know what Solomon just told us? God's wisdom is a treasure worth finding. And we have that wonderful privilege of going to the, the treasure box, the treasure hunt, participating in a treasure hunt every day of our life in the Word of God. You know, we all tend to give ourselves and our time to things that we judge to be advantageous for us, right? To things that satisfy our desires, to things that may profit us. But the majority of those things that we give our time to have very limited value and they last only for a very limited time. That's why I preached a message. You can find it on, on, on the sermon audio. Not much really matters. And if you're interested and you have time, go and listen to it again. Not much in life really matters. The majority of things that we do are going to come to an end, right? What, what are we going to take into eternity with this? Only what's done for Christ will last. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. How many people are doing that exact thing? 
building their portfolios, laying up for themselves treasures on earth. He says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? What are you treasuring in life right now more than anything else? That's where your heart is. That's where your heart is. So God gives wisdom in his word. We must be determined to pursue the wisdom that he gives. And thirdly, when you're looking for wisdom, when you're trying to discern the will of God, do not knowingly disobey any of God's commands. Do not disobey any of God's commands. And unfortunately, we have a Bible filled with the stories of people who did just that. Beginning with who? Beginning with Adam and Eve. The first humans to sin. I mean, how hard was this? Genesis 2.16, the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. How hard was that? One simple, clear commandment. And they made a conscious decision to violate that one clear prohibition that God gave them. And the consequence of that decision, I can't even emphasize it enough, was costly, right? Exceedingly costly. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men. Because all sinned. We all sinned. We're in the likeness of Adam. And when he talks that death entered the world. And death through sin. He's talking about physical death. But more than that. Spiritual death. Necessitating new life. A new birth. A new beginning in your life. When you turn away from sin and you turn toward Christ. Just think of how many people have died since Adam sinned. I, I couldn't even come up with a number. Think of the total amount of human suffering which has resulted because of a single transgression. The wars that have been fought. The murders. Drug addiction. Crimes against children, broken marriages, broken lives. Think of all the hearts that have been broken and all the tears that have been shed because sin entered the world. And yet, people continue to sin willingly. And sometimes we do, right? Thank God there's a provision in the Bible, right? That God is faithful and just and he'll, he'll, he'll keep on cleansing us of, of all of our sins until we're with him one day. And we'll be free of these bodies, of, as Paul called them, sin and death in his presence. 
Romans 8.20 says, The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That's what this world is. It's in a state of bondage. It's utterly corrupt. It's utterly broken. You cannot fix it. It's beyond repair. That's why God's going to burn it all up. Everything. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth wherein there will dwell righteousness. Amen. Right? Even so, Lord Jesus, come. The creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And I long for that die. Sin is horrific. The consequences have been horrific and continue to be horrific. Sin is so horrific that Christ Jesus our Lord had to die. He had to die. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Adam's sin, as I put in your notes, necessitated the death of Christ. The curse upon Adam fell upon all humanity. But it finds its cure in another, another man. The God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your sinless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the redemption price that was paid. And then he qualifies this, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you. So that you can have eternal life. What a, what a glorious thing. So if you were to look in Romans 5, and I've preached on this pretty extensively, find Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul looks at salvation from the curse of Adam to God's cure in Christ. And I mention this, Adam's one act of disobedience brought sin and death upon mankind. Christ's one act of obedience, perfect obedience on the cross of Calvary provided life for everyone who would receive it. Anyone who would receive it. So I counsel you this morning, don't follow Adam's example of disobedience. Follow Christ's example of perfect obedience. Do not knowingly disobey any of God's words. Romans 5.18 says, As through one man's offense, that's sin, Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many, and the Bible clarifies this, all who believe will be made righteous. Where sin abounded, grace abounded what? much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what that is speaking of? If you were following along, paying attention? 
It was speaking of the imputation of sin to all humanity from Adam's transgression. And the imputation of righteousness, perfect righteousness and holiness to every sinner who receives Christ as their Savior. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to it. They pointed to the righteousness that God would provide in the perfect Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who would believe. The question then is, have you believed? I don't know where you stand with God this morning. God does. But if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, asking Him for, your, for the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness of your sins, then you're dead, the Bible says. You are dead in your trespass and sin. You need to be alive, made alive unto God through faith in Jesus Christ. So God provided a universal provision for the sin problem of mankind. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 is speaking about. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through the substitutionary, his substitutionary death. But God did not provide automatic salvation for everyone. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. People who reject Christ will be lost forever. They're lost now. And they'll be lost forever. So salvation is not unconditional as is reconciliation. Salvation is based on the condition of belief in Christ. It's conditioned upon belief in Christ. One, God gives wisdom in his word. Two, we must pursue it. Number three, do not knowingly disobey the word of God. And fourthly, if there is no clear prohibition in scripture, then guess what? You have liberty to choose. You have freedom to choose from a, a number of possible options. Maybe the options are limited. But Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could no longer endure their absence, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. We thought it good. That's a decision that he made. And not every decision even that the Apostle Paul made turned out to be, you know, just make life rosier for him. Many of them just made life more difficult for him. So in making a, a, a decisions, in particular major decisions, try to obtain the information, all the information that, that you need to have about the subject. You can't get all of the information, right? I mean, it's just too much. You can't know everything about it, you know, the subject that, that you're exploring so that you can make, quote, unquote, a, a perfect decision. But you can gather information, the necessary information that you need. Think about the pros and cons. I always do that, involved, and probably many of you do that as well. Get as many necessary details as possible, but don't get lost in the world of details. Consider the effect of your decision on other people. 
beginning with relevant people in your life, those the closest to you. Evaluate your, your skills and abilities, right? Don't be unrealistic. You're not going to be a major league pitcher. You're not going to play in the NFL. You're not going to play in the NBA unless you're probably 6'8 or 6'9 and you, you could do all kinds of things with a basketball. But evaluate your skills and abilities. Separate your personal desires from realities. Separate your personal desires from realities. There's a lot of things we like to do and a lot of things we like to be. Forget it. You can't do all those things. You're not, you weren't made for that. And then I put this down. Consider the circumstances realistically rather than mystically. Don't wait for some voice, you know, from some, for some spiritual nudge that you can't interpret it because that's all subjective. In the Bible, we have an objective revelation. Aren't you glad for that? We could read it. We can study it. So when we do that, I put this down. The next third, interpret the Bible carefully and prayerfully when seeking wisdom. Prayerfully is very, very important. Bathe all of your decisions in prayer. All of them. But interpret the Bible carefully when you're searching for wisdom. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent. And that, that word literally, spudazo, means to use speed. I think the King James has study. But it's really more than study. It's pursuing. It's endeavoring. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. You know what that means? Tested and accepted. It was a word that they used to test metals to see if they were genuine. You know what? You know one of the big problems today, especially with young people, is they want to be approved in the sight of their peers. Right? They want to be liked by their, their peers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Tested by God and accepted by God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. I've preached on this so many times. You should be able to preach to me now. Tell me what it means. Rightly dividing the word of truth, it means to cut it accurately. To cut it accurately. Carl Ellis says, the Greek word rendered rightly dividing or correctly handles. That's a present participle. Present participles means this continuous action. The word was used actually in the, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Proverbs 3, 6 and 11, 5 in connection with udus, which is way or road, where it has the idea of cutting a path in a straight direction or to cut a road across a country that is forested or otherwise difficult to pass through. And you know, there are, there are portions of Scripture called Scripture that are difficult for us to get through, difficult to pass through, difficult to understand. Peter says that some of the things that Paul wrote were difficult to understand. So we have to cut away through those things. And, and that's where biblical exegesis 
and the rules of hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation, come into play. We can't go about it haphazardly. But we want to we cut it in a straight direction so that the traveler may proceed to safely to his destination. That was the meaning of the word, to cut it straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Direct, yasar, or shar, yashar. It means to make smooth, to make straight. Guess what it means? It means cutting a straight road through difficult terrain. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make a way through difficult terrain in your life. Now, this is not a promise. We, we use it this, as a, this all the time. I've heard it used. This is not a promise that God will give you personal direction in your life. It's not a promise. It's an admonition and assurance that if you follow the wisdom of God's word and you're trusting in him, he will clear a way for you to go. He's not going to direct every step that you take, but he'll make a way for you to go. Secondly, it does not mean that you will not face troubles or obstacles along that way. It looks at life overall. That's what Proverbs repeatedly do. It's the genre that we call wisdom literature. It's looking at life overall. Train up a child in the way he is to go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Right? I mean, you train up, in, train up your children according to the skill set, the natural abilities that God has given to them, and then they'll go that way. But not every child, right? So it's looking at life overall. The way of the transgressor, the Bible says, is hard, right? Would you rather go on a road that's been made smooth? Or would you want, want to go on a road that's hard and difficult and full of obstacles that you've created yourself? The way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the righteous, the one who seeks God's wisdom from his word, that's much easier to follow. It will not be carefree. There are no carefree things in life, really, that last. Proverbs 4.18, though, tells us the path of the just. That's the righteous, the godly man, the godly woman, is like the shining sun that shines even brighter into the perfect day. God will light your path, right? Amen. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. They live life like fools. They live haphazardly. They go from one sin to another sin, stumbling over those sins. You know, I'm thankful that Christians have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's ministry in us is to convict us of our sin and to reroute us when we go in the wrong direction. You go on GPS, right? You start to plug it in. You're, you're going a long way and then it'll go rerouting, right? You hope it's rerouting you in the right direction. I, I saw one thing. I don't know where I saw this on the news one time. There's this one place in Colorado 
where people go down this road and they, they go to see the site and the GPS is just totally, totally, you know, doesn't work. But they keep going down this road that it's telling them to go down. And I saw this one tow truck driver. He says, I, I make my living off of these people. <laughs> you know, how many of them just get on their phone? They'll go and go. And then they go and they realize that there's nowhere to go. And they, and they can't, they get out. Their cars get, they can't. He says, so we can't trust that. But, you know, you can trust the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, friends, he's rerouting you. He's telling you don't go in that direction. Stop. Cease from sin. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for it. And his, his role is to give you the guidance from his word so that you can continue on a path that is pleasing to God and that will not lead to your own destruction. Psalm 32, verse 3, David says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You know what that is? That's the Lord disciplining those that he loves. The heavy hand of God upon him. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. But then he says this, and it's really beautiful in Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. You know what that is? Confession. Homo legato, to say the same thing. To say the same thing that, that God says about it. I acknowledge, I confessed my sin to you, and my iniquity have I not hidden. He who, he who hides his sin, the Bible says, will not prosper. I said I will confess my transgressions to you, O Lord. And here's the beautiful part. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I, if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, and you're a sinner, you're dead in your trespass and sin. You need new life. But the good news is, God is willing to forgive her, forgive all of your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed my transgressions from me. East from west, as I told you many times, is an infinite direction. And that's what God does. He wipes us, our sins completely away, takes them completely away. Fourthly, don't follow worldly advice. Don't follow worldly advice. Psalm 1, 1 we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in what? The counsel of the ungodly. And there's plenty of it out there. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Watch the company that you keep. They'll either lift you up or they'll bring you down. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 26, 2, examine me, O God, and prove me. Try my mind and heart. Do you ever pray like that? That's a bold prayer. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. You're not going to have any interaction with them on their level. 
We should witness to them because they need Christ, right? But you don't join in a fellowship with them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You, you watch some of the things on on some of these news channels, and they bring in their talking heads, their quote-unquote experts, and they, they give their wisdom and their, their advice, and you know some of it is true. Some of the things and the observations that they're making are true, but they don't have a biblical worldview. I don't hear any one of them on there expressing a biblical worldview. I, don't have, I haven't heard one yet talk about Israel being the apple of God's eye. Or God making an unconditional covenant with them and blessing the nation that blesses them and cursing the nations that curse them. I don't talk. I don't hear any of them talking about the the ultimate fulfillment of what God is doing, of which Israel is a major part. All eyes on Israel. The world is watching Israel. This tiny little sliver of land. in what is probably the geographical center of the world. Why? Pray. Watch and pray. God says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. You know how God chose to save people? Through the foolishness of preaching. That doesn't mean God's word is full, doesn't mean foolish, or the word of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness, but it's foolishness to the, in the eyes of many people who hear it. But that's exactly how God chose to save. Next, seek wisdom from godly men and women. Oh, there are so many scriptures. I only give you just a sample of these. Proverbs 11.4, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 12.15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Remember a fool? You can't tell a fool anything. He doesn't see his own sin. He doesn't see the problems with his thinking. Proverbs 1.5, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Proverbs 19.20, Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Do you know there are young fools and there are old fools? And the old fools are the young fools who never learned anything. Who never attained wise counsel. They kept stumbling haphazardly through life, making bad decision after bad decision. A lot of them financial decisions, right? Because they didn't get the the first good sound wisdom principle concerning finances. Don't spend more than you can. 
make. Don't spend more than you have. It doesn't take a brain to understand that. You're going to owe a debt. And that debt is going to increase and increase and increase because it's called interest, right? The borrower is a what? A slave to the lender. And then the second one would be, and I would put this other one actually first, that, that's from a you know, worldly standpoint, world perspective, but the most important thing is don't rob God. Don't rob God. It's like putting, putting money in your pocket with holes in it. That's what the scripture says. Now, I'm not talking about a specific amount, tithe, but about the tithe principle. The tithe principle is the first part belongs to the Lord. And that's, the, that's what we should follow. It's not ours to keep everything. We, we, God doesn't need it, but God uses it for his kingdom here on earth. So don't rob God. Things like that. People never get the message. So they struggle all through their life in debt, in debt, in debt, in debt. Romans 15, 14. Now myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Every Christian should be wise enough from the knowledge of God's word to give competent counsel to somebody less wise. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know what that means? It means that good friends, true friends, wise friends will not hesitate to tell you what you need to hear. Not what you want to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then lastly, well, almost lastly, don't rush major decisions if you don't have to. Some, there might come a time when you have to, right? I mean, you just, you just have to go by the collective amount of wisdom you've gathered in your life and, and instinctively make a decision. But those are very, very rare. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Well, we have a problem with that, don't we? We want everything now. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he will strengthen your heart. And then he repeats it. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I'm going to close with one scripture found in 1 Peter chapter 4. I wanted to use this big Bible here. 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, how did he do that? Dying on the cross. Arm yourselves. And that really, metaphorically speaking, is having the same mind as Christ. Therefore, since Christ suffered for yourself in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. And I think he's referring to something back in the previous chapter where it says in, in, in verse 17, if I can find it, maybe I can't. For it, is better for, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. So then when you get to chapter 4, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh, that suffered in the flesh because they're doing what's right. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 17. It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he says, arm yourself with the same mind of Christ because Jesus Christ came to this earth, offered himself up on the cross, completely fulfilled the will of the Father, perfectly obedient for us. And we're to have that mindset that we're, we're, we're to be willing to suffer for him, for his name's sake. And it says the one who has, is doing that, suffering for doing good, not evil, has ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that they become perfectly sinless. It means they've made, a, made, they've made a, a decisive break with sin. The pattern of their life has completely changed. The way of their life has completely changed. And when you look at somebody who's a new believer, yeah, they'll stumble and they, they don't know all things, but as they're getting older and older with the Lord, they're strengthened when they say no to sin. You're strengthening, you're strengthening your resolve. You're strengthening yourself against those things. When, when you give in, just like with the diet, then it becomes easier and easier to what? To give in, to eat things that may not be good for you. So they've made a break from sin, and when you're, sa- when you're saved, you should have made a clean break from sin. And when you do sin, you confess it. So he says that he should no longer, here, here's the key, verse 2, this person who's willing to suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong and made a clean break from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. That's in this body. For the lusts of men, including his own, satisfactions and desires, but for the will of God. Is that what we're doing? Are we living our lives for ourselves, for our own satisfaction, for our own pleasures, for the accumulation of things that don't really matter in the end? Or are we living our life for the will of God, to do the will of God? It's, it's not that difficult. Jesus says, I have come, Father, not to do my own will, but to do your will. To obey, to obey. And that's what we all have to do. To obey the revealed will of God that's found in the scriptures. Don't make it more complex than it needs to be. The difficulty isn't understanding what the will of God is. The difficulty is what? Doing it. Doing what we know to be true. And I always want to tell you that when you do that, when you have a heart for God, when you pursue this command that you're going to live the rest of your life for the will of God, you won't care what people think. It won't matter to you. It won't matter to you at all. If you gain the promotion or if you don't gain the promotion. If you, if you attain whatever thing it is the world says you need to attain or you don't attain it. If you have success 
in the world's eyes or you don't have success in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter because you'll be approved to God. You'll have his stamp of approval on your life. And there is nothing better than that. Absolutely nothing. So stand strong. Do the will of God. And when you fail, like I fail, get back on track. Let the Holy Spirit reroute you. And some of you here this morning, you might need some real rerouting in your life. You may be going in a wrong direction, the way of destruction.